to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 306. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. We've got a great panel and a great topic in front of you. Let me introduce to you our regular, Jared Oliphant, who is regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but he's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Jared. It's great to have you on again. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. We are very pleased to welcome uh, to the program for the very first time Jason B. Hood. Uh, Jason will soon be the pastor at St. Margaret's Anglican Church in Moshi, Tanzania, as well as uh, teaching at uh, Munguishi Bible College for the Diocese of Kilimanjaro, which is uh, run by uh, Sydney Anglicans, some of our uh, biblical theological friends down in Australia. Uh, Jason's also the author of Imitating God in Christ, Recapturing a Biblical Paradigm. Welcome to the program, Jason. It's great to have you. Thanks, fellas. I appreciate the uh, the invite. Yeah, well, you're very welcome. We're excited to speak with you today. This book has been published by IVP Academic and we're very excited to open it up today and discuss what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ and to look at this facet, which is an important, a critical facet of our soteriology, one that has been receiving more attention recently, uh, but previously, I think, has been uh, undervalued and uh, under-addressed in our uh, theological studies. So we're going to open that up today. But before we do so, I do need to mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Please visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support. We've had a lot of uh, people clicking and uh, coming to the site recently, and we really encourage you to visit us there. Even pledging $5 a month is a big help. Helps us to uh, cover our costs and be able to put these episodes out each Friday and then also our other programs in between the weeks. So visit us online, reformforum.org slash donate. We thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, Jason, when I saw this book uh, come out, I was excited. Like uh, we've mentioned even before uh, we started recording that uh, this has been some material that I've been thinking about uh, for a while. I've been doing some reviews on on similar books and dissertations and also thinking about how in my local church I can teach more on what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ and maybe write some stuff on my own. But now I don't think I have to exactly because you've covered a lot of the uh, same material. And, and uh, this is very exciting for us to speak about uh, this this material. But Jared, I'll throw things to you first. And, and this was your suggestion. Uh, what brought this book on your radar? And uh, are you excited about it like I am? Yeah, exactly. I've been in touch with Jason over the past couple years or so, I guess, uh, over just various topics, including this one generally. And uh, so when I saw the book just cross my radar, I was really intrigued on the topic and Jason's uh, thoughts in particular. But um, yeah, and I will say, you know, that the title I think is accurate, um, but doesn't quite convey the the meat of the book. I think, you know, that's why I wanted to have Jason on to um, put a little bit more meat on the bones and see what we can do uh, with the particular chapters and, and topics that he brings up. So maybe to start off, we can just talk about the structure of the book, Jason, what you were thinking um, in terms of just the flow of the book. You, you start out with a biblical theology of imitation, and then that moves into the culmination of image bearing, which is obviously in Christ. And then you you uh, discover how that plays out in Christ's people in that aspect of image bearing, and then you go through a little bit of church history and then our contemporary context. So I'm wondering um, 
were there some other options of the structure? Was this an intentional flow that you wanted, or, or what were you thinking when you were just doing basic book composition on this topic? Well, publishers are, are attracted to things that are going to uh, make a little bit of a pop, and so there, there's always the you know a tendency to to put the the contemporary controversy you know out front. Um, but that's that's not really my style. I'm I'm a Bible guy and uh, biblical studies guy, so I was really curious about what the Bible had to say and how we would how we would try to um, to summarize the the teaching of scripture on this uh this topic. So biblical theology is just a much more natural uh place for me to camp out if I'm if I'm going to write an entire book, maybe on a blog post or something you could you could address uh you could address something that's that's a little bit more um controversial, but uh but for for a book length study, I, I think you want to just anchor things in the scriptures. That's that was sort of my goal. So um so I, I, it, it dawned on me as I had been sort of just mining church history and studying scripture uh, that that very often when we talk about imitating Jesus or when we talk about sanctification in general or discipleship in general, we're we're not really in touch at all with um, sort of some some foundational principles that I think should come into play for all of those conversations. Uh, and the book book sort of overlaps with all those things. So. The first one, of course, would be uh, that we're made in the image of God. This is this is sort of the fundamental uh, idea of what it means to be human, and that was drilled home to me in seminary. Um, it really animated the way I thought about myself, the way I thought about my students. I was was teaching school in the inner city, uh, so you can imagine all the, the the problems that that students have with identity and. Um, with with just you know who they are in Christ and who, who they are as as humans that that God has made and cares for, uh, and I was teaching in a Christian school in the inner city while I was uh, in seminary. So it was um, it, th- this topic just became very important early on for pastoral reasons and for personal reasons, and it turns out that I, th- I think it has a lot to do with um, with the Christian life as a whole discipleship, sanctification, uh, those sorts of things. So, so that's where we start. We start with, with the imitation of God because we're made in His likeness. And that's what the first four chapters are about. Uh, they're largely about the Old Testament and about God's people who are called to reflect God's character. Yeah, I think that's that's fascinating. The people speak about uh, image of God in, in a whole host of different ways. Do you find that it's um, maybe a... a one-dimensional type of characterization that you usually find? How would you expand upon what it means to be image? Yeah, I've got a, um, I'm supposed to be doing uh, a lecture at IBR on this topic, actually, mm-hmm. uh, this, uh, this fall. So I, I think, um, I think the most helpful thing to do is to pay attention to um, what biblical scholars are telling us about the image of God and, and how this, how this plays itself out in, in the ancient world um, there's there's a lot that's been done on this, and it hasn't necessarily trickled down to, um, you know, to, uh, to to the lay level yet. Um, you know, philosophers like to talk about the image of God as as our rational capacity, and artists like uh, George MacDonald and and others, uh, Dorothy Sayers, like to talk about our, our creativity and and how that uh, reflects God God's capacity and God's character, but. Um, I think first and foremost in the ancient world, um, what you have in Genesis and, and Psalm 8 is a polemic against 
the sort of the the imperial uh, image bearing where uh, an, an emperor or maybe a, pr- a priest, maybe a, a noble class of people uh, are essentially the image bearers, and everyone else is just sort of, you know, uh, some shadow thereof. And I've got a couple of lines in the book, you know, based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, what, what Moses is trying to get these former slaves to realize is that they were made to rule. They were designed to rule. And this is something that the New Testament picks up with our destiny, um, it's something that the Old Testament really wants wants us to understand, um, so that we'll we'll have a grasp on what it means to be human and, and just how awesome uh, humans can be, uh, and also how tragic our our rebellion and fall has been. Uh, so I, I think that's the place to start, and then all the other things that people suggest. Hey, this is this has something to do with uh, with with bearing God's image, whether it's rationality, creativity, and especially for for the Bible, um, our, our moral character, uh, Ephesians 4 talks about being recreated in the image of God uh, in the likeness of Christ uh, and, and true righteousness and holiness. So there, there's all of those things are necessary so that we can accomplish the thing that God made us to do, which is rule his world as his vice regents. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now you start off uh, even in the intro, and you you mention this uh, thing, and it's kind of an interesting trivia question. Uh, what was it that Paul taught? Quote everywhere in every church. End quote. Yeah, I still remember um, <laughs> being in the car with a with an older seminarian uh, at RTS. Uh, I, I married his cousin, so it's a uh, uh, it's memorable for all kinds of reasons. But I was just, you married you his know. cousin, not your own, though. So it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it, when you're in Tennessee, you have to clarify <laughs> these things. So I appreciate you uh, clarifying that. Just want to get the record straight. That's all. Yeah, we should. We should. Um, yeah, we. He asked this question, and it and it really got my wheels turning a great deal. So. Um, a, a lot to wrestle with there. What does it mean? Um, what does it mean to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ? Mm. Which is, you know, where he eventually goes with that. The, the exact line is from First Corinthians four, right. and um, Paul has basically just given the Corinthians his resume again, which is not uh, not a sexy resume. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that that jumps out uh, if you're if you're looking for someone to lead an organization, uh, for example. Um, but Paul has a lot of experience in suffering, a lot of experience in, in, in following Jesus in, in very radical ways. And he says, I'm sending Timothy back to you guys so that you'll have a flesh and blood example. It's not enough for me just to write scripture. I've, I'm, I'm actually going to send you someone who will model what this life looks like. And it doesn't look like the, the standard Corinthian uh, life of, um, of, of glory and acclaim. And all the things that, that you as Corinthians seem to be prioritizing, which is leading you to denigrate me and to denigrate the message that I, that I brought you. When I was among you, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And that for Paul is both doctrinal substance and a way of life that reflects that doctrine. And so he's sending Timothy back to them. He's insisting on this. Uh, that they that they model this in the way they run their church services, that they model this in the way they do the Lord's Supper, and that they model this uh, in the way they um, the way they esteem uh, different speakers, different uh, different different messengers that are that are being sent their way. 
Now, when we speak about imitating Paul as as Paul imitates Christ, and just this overarching idea of imitation here, when we've added a sinner to the mix, um, you know, we we start to complicate things a little bit. But also, you know, the question is, what should be imitated? I mean, is it every single thing, every jot and tittle, or what is the essence or core that we as believers are supposed to imitate in Paul as he imitates Christ? Yeah, that's that's the biggest mistake I think we've made, uh, is taking imitation very literally. Uh, I think in, in pop Christian circles with WWJD, we haven't, you know, I don't, I don't know that we're doing a lot of people a lot of favors with that. Mm. Um, but for, for Paul and other early disciples of Jesus, it, it doesn't mean um, literally taking 12 disciples uh, and being baptized in the Jordan and, you know, on and on. Um, it, it, it doesn't mean uh, that you do precisely what Jesus did. It means that you walk in the way that Jesus walked. So this is true for Augustine. Uh, this is true for uh, for Paul and, and other heroes of the faith. Um, it's not literal duplication, but it's following in the path uh, of the one who is exalted above all things and, and humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. So Philippians 2 sort of outlines this yeah. uh, very, very well. And in, in a later chapter in the book, I I point out how much of much of the latter chapters of Philippians, uh, Philippians uh, three and four, are simply a reflection on what it means to um, what it means to follow the one who who sort of laid out this track uh, for us. So, um, so it's something that you can you can duplicate this in all kinds of ways. Paul in Ephesians five applies um, the imitation of Christ to um, uh, to husbands and their relationships with their wives. Jesus wasn't married. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I'm not literally when I'm laying down my life for my wife I'm not I'm not literally uh, duplicating something that Jesus did um, I'm, I'm we're we're there in the we're in the realm of metaphor at that point and Jesus lays down his life for his bride the church and I'm to do the same uh, in a in a very literal way for my wife so those are the sorts of things we're talking about I, I think I think that mistake has thrown the church way off uh, and has encouraged many people simply to um, to, to denigrate imitation because we think it's exact duplication and right. and in the Bible it's not. And that's another thing you you mentioned too. This the fallacy, I guess, of the all or nothing. I mean, if we can't even at the levels of actions and mindsets, if we cannot imitate perfectly and make a perfect copy or clone, some people's tendency might be to throw the whole project out or the whole effort. Uh, is there still value? It's a leading question, I guess. Is there still value to imitation, even when we will fall short? Yeah, and and not just in that, but in <clears throat> you know, again, t- you can take it back to the imitation of God. Mm-hmm. Um, we're to be creative as God is creative. We're to be um, Andy Crouch's new book on on power. I think talks about this. I haven't read it. Um, if if it's in sort of the Kuiperian mold that I think it's in, I'd, I'd probably agree with a lot of what he says. Um, but um, you're, you're to imitate God's power and God's wise use of the world, and and wise wise uh, uh, wise implementation of of rule in, in His world. Uh, you're told repeatedly in the Old Testament and New Testament, "Be holy as I am holy." And what you can't do is simply throw your hands up and say, "You know, I really can't be holy. I'm not going to try." Uh, that didn't work for Israel. It doesn't work for the church. Uh, it didn't work for, for, for Jesus' disciples in the New Testament. So um, 
we're not we're not supposed to um, to to shirk duties simply because we're never going to be um, we're never going to be perfect in the execution of those duties. That's simply that, that I mean it, it yeah that's a non-starter. Whether you're a parent or a school teacher, um, you know if, if 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 I only accepted papers or only required papers from students when I knew they would be 100 percent successful. Um, we'd have to give up the, edu- the edu- education enterprise, um, but that's that's just not, what, not how we do things, and and so it's not how we do things in in the Christian life either. I think that's really helpful. There are a few quotes um, at the beginning of each chapter, and one I'll just read that kind of relates to what you've been saying. What you've been saying, and it's by Bovink, and it says Homer attributed human properties to the gods. I would prefer to attribute divine properties to us humans. I think that's a good balance, and it struck me that throughout the whole book, uh, you seem to be intentionally trying to navigate between two concepts in various forms that seem to be intention, um, and I guess are intention, but not exactly contradictory. So part of what I'm thinking of is um, while on the one hand we want to maintain God's otherness, we also want to um, affirm that we actually can um, strive to be in his image. Um, and then so there's an ontological difference, but there are definitely ways in which we need to pattern our, pattern our lives off of God. And then you have the, the Christ distinction. So was, it, was that part of what you were going for was to maintain these things that seem to be um, – either denied or affirmed depending on the Christian context you're in and trying to, to have really both ways in a, in a proper way? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a good way to put it, Jared. Um, I, um, you know, I told somebody uh, last week that ecclesiology and pneumatology, um, to, to borrow from Janis Joplin, is, um, um, is just another word for nothing left to lose but tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when, when you look at what the Bible says about us and, and who we are and, and who we're to be in Christ, uh, you've, you've got you've to start to get comfortable with, with tension. Um, and, and maybe we're never supposed to be really comfortable with it. I think that's part of the miracle of, of, of grace and, and, and part of what we learn to praise the Lord for and, and, and be just enormously grateful for uh, in the gospel that, that we're in this new place. Um, yeah, so... Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a, I think na- navigating the tension and, and dwelling in the tension is, is a good description of what, uh, what we're doing here. Right. Just, just a quick follow-up, maybe an example. You mentioned, um, humans being co-creators, um, and you have another term called sub-creators. And I, I like the way that, that you dealt with this topic because on the one hand, you don't want to completely deny that humans have any creative capacity whatsoever, but you also don't want to, um, try to affirm that, you know, we're creative in the same way that God is. So can you talk a little bit about what you were going for in, in that difference between God's creative activity and, and humans' creative activity? Yeah. So whenever I'm, whenever I'm thinking of those little, those little slogans or descriptions, I'm, I'm always, uh, you know, fearful that, that it's going to wind up on the back of a bumper sticker, you know, on a, on a bumper sticker on the back of a car, you know, God is my co-pilot sort of thing. <laughs> And, and, and really what you're doing is just, you know, you're just trying to get a little snapshot that, that will help people. Um, and those come from Sayers and Tolkien, actually. Uh, and obviously, Lewis um, sort of navigates those things as well, um, something that they thought uh, and apparently discussed a great deal uh, among themselves. Um, right. So, so in our circles... Um, you know, I and, and this is you know I've been influenced in this by Richard Pratt and and John Frame and others that I've that I've studied. So, 
but but in our circles, I think in general, we have a lot of emphasis on the distinction between humans and God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what what people need to have is sort of a balanced approach to this. Um, if I'm in a secular setting or if I'm in a setting where, where no one's really put a lot of emphasis on depravity, then um, we're going to we're going to flip that. And um, for instance, I preached recently and uh, and used the, the the eat, pray, love illustration. I feel <laughs> are familiar with this, with the, the book and the movie. Uh, I think it must have been written by Julia Roberts because I think she made a pile out of it. But um, I, I don't remember the, the actual author of Eat, Pray, Love. But uh, but she says something like the, the main character says something like um, God dwells with me as me. And it's this pantheistic idea, this this fusion of God's desires and my desires. And of course, that fits very much the standard American description of, um, of, of what religion is supposed to be about and what spirituality is supposed to be about. Ultimately, at the end of the day, for Oprah, for Disney, for Eat, Pray, Love, what, 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 what needs to happen is that I need to be affirmed. And the best way that I can affirm myself is to basically um, make myself out to be God. Uh, God dwells with me as me. And so then all my desires, right, the, the desire to leave my husband, the desire to run around the world spending gobs of money and time in a, in a fairly frivolous manner, um, I, have to, I have to engage in those things. I can't be uh, harnessed. I can't be required to sacrifice. Uh, I can't. I can't lay my desires uh, aside. And and in our contemporary world, that even includes choosing your own gender. You've got to be free to do that, even if you're six years old. So, um, so it it really depends on the audience. And, and I do spend some time in the book describing how this message um, is going would, would need to be played out for for different audiences. Yeah, that balance uh, between God's transcendence, but yet our likeness is is important and. Um, I wonder, and, and you know, you speak about this, we've already mentioned image, and image presupposes some sort of original and then a derivative of reflection. And we have the idea of imitation, we also have this picture of reflection. Um, do, you, do you find relative benefits or um, advantages but disadvantages to both of those metaphors, the imitation and the reflection? What, what might reflection help or uh, offer in terms of uh, providing that distinction, but yet relation between God and us. Yeah, and maybe um, maybe likeness is the word that yeah, that sort of in in, in biblical parlance. I, I don't. I, I'm racking my brain. I, I can't remember uh, reflection sort of being part of the way that we translate. But I think I think in some cases it would certainly be a faithful um, a faithful description of what the the original is trying to bring across. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the problems that we face is. Is is trying to uh, trying to translate these terms in in useful useful ways because for Paul and for others there would be um, a discipleship context both for uh, in, in rabbinic culture and in um, uh, apprenticeship and, and and these sorts of things in, in Greco Roman culture as well. So um, I, I think each of the terms that we could we could probably bring to bear um, reflection, likeness, imitation, participation. Uh, and even even sanctification, even even words that we've left behind like godliness, uh, can can help um, highlight you know some particular aspect of this task that that God's uh, God has for for His people. So, just to give you one, uh, the word godly has just dropped off the radar entirely. <laughs> 
Uh, I don't hear that word ever anymore. When I when I was growing up in church, we heard it all the time, and and I think it's just gotten to be too religious, and and so we've um, uh, we've we've dropped it. We we also don't refer to Jesus as the Lord anymore. Uh, I don't know if those things are related, but uh, certainly certainly things go in cycles. It seems like, and um, it's it's interesting, particularly when you encounter Christians from other cultures who are much more comfortable with with certain language. Uh, you might hear those terms repeatedly. That just might be part of their, their bread and butter of the way they talk about Christ, the way they talk about the Christian life. Um, but, but godliness and, and the, the word godly uh, implies God-likeness. And again, it's not that you're like him in every respect, but it's that you, you, are, um, you are bearing his character uh, and, and a reflection of his character in the world, his righteousness and, uh, and his mercy, um, his, his love for, uh, for, for the lost and uh, and for the hurting. So those things are, um, yeah, the, it, I think it's really important to vary your language. I really do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, imitations seem like a good catch-all, and, um, and, and particularly because that, that word has been um, beaten uh, ruthlessly sometimes uh, by people who, who really don't like the concept or, uh, or think that it's legalistic or moralistic. So I wanted to recapture that. And, well, it's a good word. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's it's faithful to, to the text, and it gets the point across. But you know, with any with any word, I mean, they're it's only able to convey certain concepts. But that's what you tra- you address and unpack throughout the entire book. You know, all the other facets of it too. Sure, and I've mm-hmm. I've heard from some people who are very sympathetic to what I'm doing that they would prefer participation uh, mm. to be the, the 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 key word. Um, uh, I don't know. It, yeah, that lends itself to other <laughs> other interpretations, especially yep. just from uh, yeah, it has its own set of problems. Well, zooming out a little bit, just I'm thinking of theology proper as a topic, and um, I think just the tradition has acknowledged in some respects that um, this occurs because of even the way we classically have divvied up the the properties, God's properties. We we label them incommunicable and communicable, and so there's mm-hmm. there's a general acknowledgement that some things God has that we will never have: infinity, eternity, omnipresence, yeah. those kinds of things. And then there are communicable attributes where there's an analogy or there's an an iconic element to some of the things that God has that, that we also have, again, um, by just image-bearing. Yep, yep. Uh, not being uh, a systematician, I, I think I did mention communicable and incommunicable attributes in a footnote, um, but I, I didn't want to get too into that, um, primarily because I'm, you know, and as I'm, as I'm writing, I'm, I'm trying not to use terms that I'd have to explain for uh, for a lot of lay readers, right. um, I think I only used the word eschatological once, and I was really proud of myself for <laughs> for accomplishing that. Um, I, I think eschatology is massively important, uh, and and I think it comes across in the book. But um, but but you're right that is uh, that is one of the things that we that we run up against. Um, one of those challenges, you know, mm-hmm. that we've uh, if you if you've uh, carved out that space uh, for divine attributes. Um, then that's going to have a, a particularly uh, noted impact on on how you start talking about the imitation of God. What is God's ultimate purpose in godly imitation? We could imagine that He's doing. Uh, he could do a number of different things uh, in the way that He wants to redeem us and save us. Um, but Romans eight twenty nine is is a passage you reference many many times. It's kind of one of those programmatic 
verses, it speaks about our predestination. The whole purpose of it is so that we would carry a family resemblance, so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, so that Christ could be the firstborn of many brethren. Um, What is God's ultimate plan in making us like him? What is his desire, and how does he work that out? Well, I think I think you see his desire in in the opening chapters of Genesis. Uh, he wants the world to be full of people who rule his world and who reflect his character. And human rebellion has created a grave uh, obstacle, uh, at least an apparent obstacle uh, to that to that program. Um, but in Christ, we see um, the beginning of the restoration of humanity. You see Christ enthroned where Adam was enthroned. You see uh, Christ putting his people to work in the world again by the Spirit, just as Adam and Eve were. And um, and so I, I think we're, what we're seeing now uh, in these last days, uh, to quote someone's blog, I think that's where that comes from, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, maybe that's it was right. Hebrews. Um, but in these last days, yeah. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. Uh, it, what we see in these last days is is the first fruits of, of the restoration of that original uh, design. And I spent a, a fair amount of time laying that out. I, I think... I think that starts to get tricky because you you know you're you're up against some uh, some different theological camps there. But uh, but the long and the short of it is is that already um, we're participating in resurrection life. Uh, I've got a line from from Gaffin in there, um, several lines from Gaffin. Uh, I don't think I mentioned his double one hundred percent, but I think that's uh, oh. that's a great way to look at sanctification. Mm-hmm. But if that's true, if the Holy Spirit is in us, and, and, and if Ephesians 2 is right, that we've already been raised with Christ, and we're united with Him so that what's true of Him is, is becoming true of us, then the whole of Christian life is, is tied to, or as Gavin puts it, subsumed under the category of resurrection. Yeah. And so we're, we're being driven toward this, this glorious destiny in such a way that we can participate in it now. It's it's the exact opposite of of the pie in the sky. Um, eschatology has nothing to do with what's going on in the world now, and you can just sort of sit quietly and wait for it to happen to you, um, wait to get yanked out of the world. And instead, I think the New Testament's vision uh, is that God is, is putting his people to work again, uh, good works that he created in advance for us to do, uh, and and he's um, he's raised us with Christ so that we can do these things. He's given the Holy Spirit to us, uh, as it says in Ephesians four, to bring the church to maturity. And what does that mean? What does bring the church to maturity means? It means um, the the full stature of the measure of the Messiah, the true human. Um, so we're all day long conforming one another to these uh, to this um, to this image uh, in. And Lewis has this lovely line about, and, and frightful line, uh, about our, our ultimate destiny. Um, it's, it's either a, a whore or a nightmare, um, or it's something that if you saw it, you would be tempted to worship it now. And he says, all day, what he, a lot of people quote that, but they rarely quote the next little part. He says, all day long, we're helping one another along in, in how we get to one or the other of those destinations. Um, I don't think he mentions evangelism. I would certainly start there. Uh, evangelism, our, our work, our play, our recreation. Um, you, you've never met a mere mortal, and all of us are, are helping one another along the way to these destinations. And the way we speak to one another uh, and the way we interact with one another 
in a way we gratefully engage God's world um, in, in play, recreation, politics. Uh, I think Lewis names all those things. So, um, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's what we're, we're headed toward. And that's, uh, I think, the beautiful thing about it for me is that it's not just a piece of doctrine sort of out there in the future, but it has such a, an incredible bearing on what we do right now. Um, and, and gives dignity to what we do right now. What I do with my children, when I read them books, uh, when I pray with them, um, I, I, I'm really encouraged by that. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And uh, coupled with that, you have a, a section which, for some, depending on their context, um, might be one of the more controversial topics, and that's on imitating the saints. And mm. that can sound a little bit of, or a little bit like man worship or something like that. But um, want to tease out this concept a little bit. Um, particularly, you mentioned a few verses: First Peter five. You mentioned First um, Thessalonians and, and even Hebrews eleven, where um, we see just you know model Old Testament saints that the writer of Hebrews expounds upon. And so, um, can you can you just flesh out a little bit what you were going for um, in? And encouraging us actually to imitate saints, given everything that we've said prior um, in this discussion and also within the book as well. Yeah, um, <clears throat> this is really important because if all you have is 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 the imitation of God or even the imitation of Christ, then you know you don't have these human examples of of, of these these fallen people who have to do it along the way despite their fallenness. So, um, I I think. Um, I think that the New Testament's really clear that this is a very important way to read the Old Testament. Um, what, what I like to do in class when I teach, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, uh, one of the first things we discuss is, you know, what to expect when you open up the Bible. And I usually, there's a lot of places you can go for this, uh, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 10, um, 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17. Um, in each of those places, what you'll find is, that and particularly we'll just use Second Timothy three for 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 point of reference here. In verse fifteen, he says that that in the scriptures, you know, that you were taught, you know that this is this is where you find wisdom for salvation in Christ. So the Old Testament un, unfolds um, and in in Christ and by the Holy Spirit is unpacked in such a way that the gospel can be found there. You can go to the story of David and Goliath, and you can learn about your messianic hero who conquers your greatest enemies. Uh, that's not where Paul stops, though. Uh, that's really, really important for, for unpacking the Old Testament and unpacking the New Testament in, in sermons and Sunday school lessons with your, with your children and on and on. But on the other hand, there's also um, the need to look at 16 and 17. And, and he tells us a little bit more there about what Scripture's for. Um, it's the purpose of Scripture is to make you mature and complete, ready for every good work. And he says this happens through reproof, not through instruction. Uh, we see elsewhere in Paul that uh, the, the point of all these things, uh, positive and negative examples. Some people do what's right, and some people do what's wrong. Some people don't trust God. Some people do trust God. And we're, just, we're simply supposed to learn um, from, from what's in these stories uh, how to respond to God in our own context. We have the same God. Uh, we live in, in, in a similar world, not an identical world, but a similar world. Uh, and uh, we have to have the same response, you know, an obedience that, that people had uh, in the Old Testament. So there's something to learn from Phineas. There's something to learn from, from Aaron and Miriam, uh, the, the Israelites who rebelled. 
<clears throat> and um, yeah, so 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 ultimately, this this comes down to a question of what do you do with the Bible? Uh, what is the Bible there for? And the Bible's there to teach us about salvation in Christ, and it's also to teach us about um, sort of the moral life that follows from that salvation. I don't think I don't think Paul wants us to separate those quite as neatly as we've we've tended to do. Yeah. Yeah, there's always that indicative and imperative um, that that's that's so critical and important. Uh, another another uh, angle that some critics might have, um, they might recognize this this pattern of imitation that it's essential and that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. But how do we balance that, or at least account for the fact that the Lord saves us from our sin? That uh, we are dead in our sins, and then we're brought to life. There's a whole forensic aspect, and, and of course there's a monergistic aspect to our salvation that we find throughout the Bible, and especially in Pauline thought. Why does imitation and conformity to the image not supplant the fact that it is God's initiative and it's it's God's redemptive work that brings us to a point in which we imitate? How do we get yeah, those two... I- uh, to balance one another without imitation, for instance, becoming um, the, the starting point of our salvation. Right. I, I don't. I don't like the word balance too much because yeah. I. I, um, I, I think. Um, I, I think the Bible is, is is pretty unbalanced. If you just you know just just you're encountering it for the first time, yeah, it seems to word. simultaneously mm-hmm. um, to split an infinitive to simultaneously yeah. uh, emphasize. God's radical sovereignty in predestining His people and in, uh, in in justifying them. At the same time, it also radically emphasizes this call to follow Christ um, and and to walk in the Spirit, and, uh, and it expects us to be participants in in, in this process and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, um, I, I think um, I think if you pay attention to the best expositors that we have and. I've got a, a chapter on church history where I mention uh, a few fathers, but mostly Luther and Calvin. Uh, they are very comfortable um, with that, um, I guess you'd call it double imbalance, uh, that there's this radical emphasis on, on God's sovereignty and God's mercy and grace. But on the other hand, there's also this radical emphasis on, um, on what God has called us to do. I, I think the trick becomes... Uh, identifying where a particular saint or where a particular congregation is. Uh, this is this is where I'm, I'm not. I don't know how much help the book will be for for that. And I, I actually say that at the conclusion. I'm I'm just trying to do a biblical theology of imitation. I'm not trying to tell you what precisely to get up and preach this next Sunday. Yeah. Um, if if uh, if you're in a con- congregation that's incredibly comfortable. Um, and uh, where, you know, in, in Anglican circles, for example, we'll have lots of gospel in the liturgy, lots of gospel in Holy Communion every week. Um, y- you know, you, you might need to, to put a lot of emphasis in a sermon on, um, on that radical response to the gospel. Um, again, it simply depends on what, on what people need to hear, and, and you have to sort of work that out and counsel with other uh, with other godly and experienced uh, pastors and, and, and preachers, um, so that you don't become unhealthily um, um, imbalanced, and I think imbalanced um, um, in, a, in a very unbiblical way. And, of course, we see that, and that's what people are worried about. They're worried that, that we're going to lose uh, the, the emphasis on justification and regeneration, monergistic re- regeneration. 
that so many of us have found to be so helpful and, and encouraging um, and, and liberating. Uh, so we, we don't want to lose that at all. Uh, on the other hand, we don't want to put ourselves in a position where um, uh, where we're neglecting, or even in today's circles, we see some reinterpretation of some of the, the radical commands that, that Christ has laid down. I really don't want to see that happen. Uh, and, and, and it's very easy for that to sort of slip in. I, I've even met some lay people who have been inspired by um, uh, what, what, what they would interpret as, you know, people who are preaching grace. And they begin to reinterpret certain things to, to make it more comfortable uh, and, and to sort of bring what, what they perceive to be as uh, um, riding the balance on the, side of, uh, on the side of grace or the side of the gospel. Uh, ultimately, what we need to see is that salvation isn't just about soteriology, I should say, isn't just about regeneration and justification. Exactly. It, it also includes uh, resurrection, new eschatological life right now, uh, and it includes sanctification. Uh, if um, I, I got asked to, to do some work on the relationship between sanctification and glorification not long ago, and um, really, really beautiful uh, thing to, to sort of wrestle with. You know, what's the relationship between those two things? And there's a lovely line, and I think it's from Sinclair Ferguson, maybe from G.I. Packer, I can't remember, w- one of those two. And I think I may include this somewhere in the book, where, where um, glorification... Uh, uh, it, uh, sanctification is glorification begun. There's this transforming process that the Holy Spirit is already at work doing in His people. Um, so I, I'm, I find that to be really encouraging, that, oh, that yeah. Jesus hasn't just saved me, He hasn't just forgiven my sins, but He sends out His Holy Spirit, and He's enthroned to to reign and to get victory over, over sin. Yeah, and to come back to the Romans 8.29, if the purpose of predestination, even the foreknowledge from before the foundations of the world. If the purpose of that is so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ so that he would be firstborn of many brothers, we've got to ask, well, what does that image look like? That image has a manifold uh, aspect or a manifold um, nature. It does include justification, a righteousness. We receive that through imputation. Uh, we receive it by faith. We also uh, receive his holiness over the course of our life. God is helping us and making us to die more and more unto sin and bringing us alive together with him. Amen. And that's part of the gospel, too. That's what God is doing. It also includes an adoption, that we're included into his family, accepted and received into the number, that we receive an inheritance, we're made co-heirs. And we will be raised from the dead, imperishable. And the beautiful thing, I think, is from 2 Corinthians 3.18, which talks about us being uh, transformed from one degree of glory to another. If there is a degree of glory and then another degree of glory, we see that the process of glorification does culminate in our bodily resurrection, but it begins even at the inception mm. of our... our um, of receiving Christ and being united to him, the, the inception of, of our salvation. But that's something going on throughout our whole lives. And I, that's one thing that I think uh, is, is a great value of this book, that you've shown that we ought not truncate the gospel or truncate soteriology, but remember this important point that's been taught and emphasized throughout church history, but kind of fell off the map for a short time. Yeah, that's something that, particular passage from from 2 Corinthians 3, that whole discussion there is just 
been very important for my family. My yeah. um, my mother-in-law just died of, of Lou Gehrig's disease and, mm. and had it for a, a long period of time. Uh, we lived with him for a decade and, and had to participate in, in care and, and sort of, you know, watch the decline and, and the suffering. But um, but that passage really helped, uh, I think, everybody in our family as we reflected on what God was doing and that God brings life out of death and he even brings life out of the, the process of death um, and the promise that we're being, we're being transformed, um, not just in the future, but also now being, being conformed and, and being molded even by our suffering yeah. and by um, uh, the way the Holy Spirit can use our suffering. I, 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 we, we all found that to be enormously comforting. And there's a knoll um, in, a, in a cemetery in Memphis with 2 Corinthians 4 on it uh, for that reason, uh, because it's not just a testament to, to where my mother-in-law is now and where she'll be in the resurrection, but, uh, but to what was happening to, to her and to all of us uh, you know, through that process. Yeah. So lots of pastoral value to this. This isn't just uh, isn't just an academic exercise no. for us. And I was just uh, privileged to finish a series on Philippians last uh, well yesterday morning. I've been preaching through that with my congregation, and you've mentioned that Philippians two six through eleven is so important for laying out for us the the roadmap or the blueprint for the Christian life. And it's it's a movement from suffering unto glory. And then we can get mm. to Philippians 3.10 and Philippians 3.21. And even on into Philippians chapter 4, we come to see that our sufferings in this present life are part of us becoming like the man who suffered, like Christ who suffered, so that we would participate in his sufferings, so also that we would be conformed to his image in glory. And that that adds meaning and significance that our sufferings aren't arbitrary. Or what you yeah. and your family encountered suffering alongside your mother-in-law was part of you becoming like Christ. I, I think it, it, you know, stepping back for a moment from, from personal stuff, Camden, it, I'm headed to Africa, and our number one theological export uh, as a nation is the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity mm-hmm. gospel. And this is such an important antidote to that. I, I really wish uh, more people, um, more theologians were, were able to sort of take this message and and sort of disseminate this and, and, and live out this vision even uh, for those who, uh, who need to hear it around the world. This is, um, I think it's a real tragedy that um, despite the great growth of the church, we've um, we've allowed um, some really poor teaching to to leak out, and and so finding ways to to rectify that balance is just I, I think is terrifically important. And and this message that you just summarized from Philippians is um, is is right at the heart of what people need to hear. Is they need to to reevaluate um, what it means to be a disciple and what God uh, promises for His people. He doesn't promise a lack of suffering. He promises that He'll use our suffering. Not to belabor the point, but I think um, the point that you made earlier, Jason, um, in that you're what you're doing in this book is basically uncovering and, and expanding upon some principles. Uh, and so when you deal with soteriology or whatever, you're trying to give the full picture. And then it's up to the readers in particular congregations and even particular individuals within their own family context or evangelistic context to then take what's most helpful from that and use that given whatever their situation is. So um, just relating back to what we were talking before, I think it's so important to maintain 
the tensions that you do maintain in this book and you're going to use maybe one in one situation and the other in another situation. If you're dealing with health and wealth, then you're going to say one thing. If you're dealing with maybe legalism on the one hand, you're going to, you're going to say some different things. But in back of that is going to be a lot of these principles that we've talked about right now that, again, you can just kind of apply given whatever situation you're in. Yeah, that's right. Um, we're, we're being told by some that that there's only one message that everybody needs to hear. And I'm just not sure that that's what you find in the New Testament. Yeah, exactly. Um, if, if you look at Revelation 2 through 3, um, th- there's some similarities in those little letters, but there's also some significant differences. So um, that would be the, that would be the short, short way to respond there. Um, as far as the utility of the book, what, what I've tried to do is, is lay it out, um, the, the bulk of it, more than 80%, uh, sort of flows in canonical fashion. So there's four chapters on the Old Testament, there's three chapters on the Gospel and the Gospels, uh, there's uh, three chapters on Paul and, and his letters, maybe four chapters on Paul, I think, now that I think of it, uh, and then a, a few chapters at the end of, that that sort of bring Hebrews, First Peter, Revelation uh, to bear. Um, and the reason I did that is that, you know, we're busy, um, you know, we, we, you've got a series on, on Matthew's Gospel, you don't necessarily have time to read the entirety of my book, so... Um, you know, dipping into the intro and then, you know, the chapter on where Matthew pops up, I think that could be, could be really helpful for people uh, just to kind of have that, that sort of tool um, on their, uh, on their shelf. Yeah. Well, Jason, we really appreciate first you writing the book, but then also you taking the time uh, to join us today. I think this discussion has been fascinating, but more than that, it's been very important and I hope it'll lay the foundation for future study and um, reflection and contemplation in our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us, Jason. Well, I'm I'm hopeful most of all that it'll uh, it'll be something I continue to reflect on. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's challenging material, and you know, you know, trying to figure out what it means to to imitate Christ and to imitate others is is not something that's easily done. You know, it's a lifetime project. So um, I'm I'm grateful that I had the chance to sit and, and think about these things. Um, I'm not always as grateful that I have a lifetime to, to try to figure out, you know, what it means to live it out. But, um, (laughs) anyway, we can, we can all pray for, for growth in that area. Amen. Again, the book here, Imitating God in Christ, Recapturing a Biblical Pattern by Jason B. Hood and published by InterVarsity uh, Press Academic, IVP academic. Uh, You can find out uh, more information online. We'll have a link to this book in our notes uh, for the episode, which will be online at reformedforum.org. And there you'll find information about all of our programs, as well as how to get in touch with us. We encourage you to tweet us at Reformed Forum or send us an email at mail at reformedforum.org. We love hearing from you and uh, interact with you as we uh, have the opportunity. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope that you join us again next time on Christ the Center.